0: This week on In Vogue, the 1990s, we're doing something a little bit different. A special bonus episode featuring the iconic John Galliano, who we are pleased to wish a very happy birthday this week. I spoke to John about his experiences in fashion for our London Libertines episode, but we had so much to talk about that we decided to dedicate a bonus episode to that conversation. So, without further ado, John Galliano. So John, when do you think you realised that you wanted a career in fashion? That actually happened
1: quite late, Hamish. I mean, I was studying, as part of my further education, I applied to City and East London College, where I studied English, English literature, French language, French literature, and as a by class to all that was art lesson, which was like a Wednesday afternoon or something. I already loved drawing, and I was told I was quite gifted. So somehow, the fates, I ended up going to these classes and spending more and more time than I should have. And I liked the crowd there, and it was all academic, you know. And then I kind of uh, dabbled in textiles and printed matter, woven matter. And the wonderful kind of hippy-trippy teachers there at the time advised me to apply to St. Martin's School of Art. And I did as they said. Then I was offered a place.
0: What what was the atmosphere at St. Martin's like then? I mean, who were your fellow classmates?
1: It was really colourful for me. I'd never seen people like that, kids from all walks of life. Were just inspiring. I mean, do you remember what David used to look like? I mean, David Harrison had bleached hair, it was a quiff, and he had a pink poodle. He'd dye his poodle pink. Um, yeah, casual day were. And he, cut, he introduced me to that notion of second-hand shopping. Before that, I hadn't, didn't get those charity shop things at all. Do you remember the textile department? Natalie, colorful parakeets like pink and orange and bright-colored kimonos. It was above the beetroot club. Do you remember? <laughs> a Friday night you'd go and do some extra work in the textile department, because you could hear the beats coming up through the floor from what was a very cool club called the Peachtree Club.
0: John Galliano and I both attended St. Martin's. He was two years ahead of me and was seen as a sort of prodigy even then, although he hadn't originally gone to school for fashion design as he was more focused on his work as a fashion illustrator. Nevertheless, in his final year, he ended up producing a collection for his degree. Originally, you hadn't intended to even... Make a, a degree collection. You were focusing on illustration. So tell me about that pivot and who caused that. and and tell me about your final collection.
1: My tutor then was Sheridan Barnett, the wonderful Sheridan Barnett, so chic, and I would look up to him, and he was all minimal. and uh, you know his work. it was it was quite something back in the day in, in London and he had introduced me to the world of René, Lartigue, Henri Cartier. And I don't know, I guess the rabble the in me, I was starting to get lost more in the history, illustrations and cartoons, and the way they depicted these characters and often summed up a line. So I stumbled upon Les Incroyable and the Merveilleuses and Saint-Culotte and the French Revolution. And it was at a time when designers were putting women in men's tailoring. Um, and this was a very romantic notion. I mean, it was genderless. Um, a lot of the coats were cut on a kimono block because I was still learning. But they could be worn inside out, upside down. We put boys in skirts and girls in uh, uh, 18th century looking underwear with waistcoats and I had sourced the fabrics from upholstery shops and patched them together and my father helped me drill holes into pennies and they became the buttons after I had dipped them in a bowl of salt to oxidise them for that perfect shade of birth degree. Got in trouble for that one actually, I must tell you. Yeah, my first shipment to Browns Mrs B, the wonderful Mrs B, got sent back to me because the police had come by the the store. She'd bought 12 waistcoats. And you're not allowed to deface the face of our queen, the Queen of England. So I had to quickly change the buttons. And then I made them out of plasticine and fixed them in the oven. And they were replaced.
0: You hadn't intended to do a fashion show, but you ended up doing one. And this is Sheridan encouraging you to bring your sketches to life, presumably.
1: Yes, that was that was it. That was it. I protested. I can't cut, I can't sew, I can't. He said that line, that curious, illustrative line, cut it like that. Ding, right, so I can actually draw on the cloth and I can make shapes and I can cut it like that. And don't need a pattern, we'll deal with that when we see this mess on the body. And uh, we'll make it look a bit more attractive. Thank you for reminding that. It was that curious, illustrative line. And and my fear went out the window because I just went straight into it, cutting the cloth. In fact, a lot of my boyfriends and girlfriends at the time, I would make things for them without a pattern. I'd go straight into cloth. <laughs> it was so, a beginning.
0: <laughs> so you've talked about... Um... The textile department being over the beetroot, yeah. and you getting your your club experience secondhand, as it were. But tell me a little bit about some firsthand club experiences. What were the what were the exciting clubs of the moment, and did they kind of feed into your design aesthetic?
1: I think so. I, I think so, especially seeing people living it, breathing it. You know, it was infiltrating. It was part of Saint Martin's, wasn't it? Clubs, Wardour Street, Taboo. <laughs> <Do
0: you remember? laughs> How could I forget? So t- tell me a little about Taboo. Oh, Taboo is amazing. It's where
1: all the creative types around Soho w- w- would end up, or from other schools. So we shared, we danced, we laughed. There was a great guy at the door called Tasty Tim, and you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of Tasty Tim. And so he would hold up a mirror to you and say... Would you let you in? (laughs) You know, we'd start making the outfits on Monday, you know, to be ready for Thursday and four-thread overlockers and things. And um, it was fantastic. So inspirational. It just gave you that shot of energy. Hypnotized by the beats that fashion was paced at. And this constant change. You couldn't wear the same thing twice. or no, you'd be shown the way out. So you, you know, the pressure. <laughs> <laughs> All good, good training, for a designer.
0: <laughs> so you're establishing your your own label, and you have various backers through the '80s: Peter Bertelsen and Cheek.
1: There was a Johan Bruun who was this, of course, fantastic guy. When I first left school. But really, the very first deliveries and things I was doing was thanks to Mrs. B, who would upfront a check so I could buy the fabrics, produce the clothes, deliver them, and then I had orders from Bazaar, which was a gentleman's shop, just quite a cool gentleman's shop down the road. But unbeknownst to me, Mrs. B had rung me, and she said, "John, what's, you know what, what's going on?" I thought that we were just going to be your exclusive, you know. Outfitters, and I said, But you are Mrs. B. But unbeknown to us, Joe had sent someone in and bought all the uncroyable waistcoats and then put them in his new shop in Old Brompton Street uh, and put them in the window. And of course, everyone thought that I was, you know, I was so flattered, but I did get in a bit of trouble with Mrs. B. But anyway, I explained (laughs) the whole situation. She was like, He's a terrible man. But anyway, we got through that. Um, so, yeah, bit by bit, I was producing at home. My parents had gone away for the summer, <laughs> so the sitting room became our little factory, and um, my mates from St. Martin's, John Flett included, kind of helped me to produce these
0: things. What was the impetus to move to Paris and to leave London?
1: I wanted to be an international designer. I wanted to get my head around production and deliveries and costings and all those all those things that I knew I needed to know more about. And then I had a a great, great friend and assistant and soul brother and son, Stephen Robinson, who encouraged me to kind of pack up and leave London and go to Paris. I mean, without him, I wouldn't have taken those steps. But he had total and blind belief in me and sacrificed so much. We had a friend in common through an agent called Dietmar, Dietmar Schloten. And he introduced me to this gentleman called Fais Lamont, who had his own company in Paris, uh, producing a line called Plan Sud, And we had a lot in common. Um, he was from Morocco, the Spanish heritage. Or we kind of hit it off. And uh, he was fascinated by all things London and had heard about me. And so he kind of let me take some of his space in his studio headquarters and i kind of you know would just give my thoughts on what i thought when he showed me things and he would let me just kind of you know beaver away in a corner um producing things there was 12 there was the odd machinist that could help so it was quite a wonderful time but kind of living hand to mouth but you know we were driven we were driven by by um this all-consuming creative passion but now i I have a bit more balance and hold on the thing. But, I mean, it still can be all-consuming. It's an obsession.
0: John was known for his romantic and innovative designs and for his incredible runway presentations. One of these collections, his spring 1994 show called Princess Lucretia, was featured in Vogue's March 1994 issue. Do you want to tell me about... um, Princess Lucretia, for instance.
1: Yes, Princess Lucretia. Well, I had then got to know Andre, Andre Leontelli, who had paid us a visit. And we were putting together the Princess Lucretia collection. And there was a whole narrative behind. That's how I kind of worked. There was the story and then through the story, the different characters took hold of me. It was Lucretia escaping Russia. She ended up being a dotty Duchess in the Outer Hebrides. And and so that's the collection I was working on. These huge crinoline shapes that kind of like moved like a Hobart illustration because we threaded through telephone wires. So there were crinolines that were just out of control in the lightness and the movement. Every step the girl would take, it would quiver like an echo. You know, like when you throw pebbles on a pond. And I just found that so feminine.
0: And can you paint a picture of the runway show itself? What do you remember of that? Well, I
1: think it was in the Louvre. So it was not having um, enormous budgets. It was quite simple. But the girls had the story. They'd come in for their fittings. We gave them, like, a research book, just like a cahier, an exercise book. And, And within it, I'd stick different feelings down, emotions, or press flowers for colors and stories, and then that would inspire them. So they had like a character to play, which for me was amazing because they became that character. They were fearless. And they looked at themselves in the mirror, and it was there that I saw the connection, if you like, the girls that knew what they were wearing, that understood the line. These girls knew about light. These girls could walk onto a runway in complete pitch black. But they would know from the little red dots back then where to give good face, because that was the video cameras. They knew, they knew their angles, they knew their back views. Then Anna had produced this amazing shooting of my clothes from the previous one, Lucretia with Grace and Stephen Myself. Amazing spread. And Andre turned up with the pictures, advanced copies of them, and said, Anna wants you to meet um, John Ball from Payne Webber and Mark Rice, his associate. So we went to the Bristol and he laid out this spread and he was like, this is what American Vogue thinks of John Galliano. What are you going to do? I was like, oh. by then I could not even communicate like I do today. I was quite shy and trembling. And then the rest was this hurricane. Suddenly I had my own studio and atelier in Paris in the Bastille. I was in business and I was able to produce those orders and do short runs on the bias because they were still very difficult to produce. But little by little, um, the, the factories we worked with, they welcomed us with open arms and would close the factories at the weekend to really get their head around how much these fabrics would stretch or steam or shrink. And we produced beautiful bias card dresses for ready to wear
0: When we return, more moments from John Galliano's storied career after the break. Hey, Run Through listeners, are you curious about what goes on behind the scenes at Vogue and in the world of fashion? Join Vogue Club, a -a one-of-a-kind fashion community where you can unlock exclusive access to Vogue editors, industry players, and fellow members, as well as receive expert style advice, tickets to VIP events, handpicked gifts, and so much more. Visit VogueClub.com today and get 20% off using promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. That's VogueClub.com, promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. Welcome back. We return to John Galliano, who in 1994 was in danger of not even producing a collection for the season. A season later, when there was a there was a threat that you might not be able to show, I, I think you might have moved on from Faisal, but you had in your mind, perhaps, already the idea for the Japanism collection. So tell me how that actually came to be realised.
1: Well, I, I think Anna's had that, I mean, there was like three four weeks before the collection was due that I couldn't do it. I couldn't produce it. And she said, you can't miss a season. You you just simply can't miss a season. So I'm God, like, oh, what do I do? I mean, I've got like three to four weeks left. And then the magic, the magic of Anna kicked in and Andre. So I kind of beavered away finding fabrics that I could off the shelf and There was one fabric I was familiar with, which was a satin back crepe, and it was martelet, hammered on one side and super shiny on the other side, like licorice. And I kind of used both sides of the fabric uh, to make it look like more fabric. And in the interim, André had reached out to Serge Lumberger and arranged a lunch and asked if we could use one of her hôtel particulière in Paris. Um... And I remember her saying, oh, there's no such thing as a free lunch, is there, Andre? <laughs> and she said, yes. So we had a venue, Hamish. We had a venue. And very quickly, Julianne spread the word and Stefan and the girls and the kind of everyone, you know, Amanda, Steve, everyone just believed in what we were doing and, and gave for 100% because there was no money involved. And the, all those girls did get up very early. It was like a five o'clock start time for hair and makeup, and Linda was one of the first, and Nikki Taylor, and Naomi, and Debbie Jittering, and Christian, the girls, the girls all were there. So we we put the show together, and with Amanda, we kind of, we did this beautiful, almost like Sarah Moon-like lighting, and we lit the building from outside in, so it was like dawn, and put a bit of dry ice in there, cobbled together some antique, chairs kind of did our own seating arrangement a bit like a salon presentation but quirky and then brushed in a lot of dried autumnal leaves and I think there was one chandelier that I wanted to put up but we never got round to it so we just left it on the floor crashed on the floor and that was the setting and the girls came down from the dressing rooms above which were sales bedrooms and they meandered down the stairs and through the salons Manola had produced the shoes, divine shoes. And then we had Empress Eugenie's jewel. I mean, the diamonds were all real. Every jeweler in Paris and their bodyguards took up like a whole, I think the third floor was just bodyguards and jewelry, which we gaily pinned on like it was costume. It was the real. I don't think you can do things like that anymore. <laughs> I really don't. And there was an interest from buyers, from Saks, Bird Dogs, Jeffreys, serious buyers. I was meeting the grand ladies of society. They were coming to buy couture. They'd heard about me, which was quite something. And I think that's where Mr. Arnaud heard about it. it was like, who is this upstart from London? And the couture ladies are going to visit him you know, downtown. It wasn't Avenue Montaigne. So, um, and it was fascinating to hear them. And just to say, to explain about bias cut dresses and why the suspenders, she would wear the clip on the inner thigh. So you never got the impression on the outer thigh. Through little tricks like that, you can only learn from the ladies.
0: And then that was followed by a sort of a collection set amongst what looked like the rooftops of Paris, the snowy rooftops.
1: Yeah, we recreated the tops of the... Parisian rooftop scene and then covered it with snow as the girls prowled around and over the rooftops with um, a few drunken sailors thrown in for good measure. Everyone's boyfriends were backstage, whether it was Michael, uh, Michael from who was going out with Helena at the time or Johnny with Kate and uh, Irve with Amber. So, I mean, the atmosphere backstage was equally electric. <laughs> Fuminolas got lost on the fake snow. That was quite a challenge, but we didn't do things like rehearsals. Do you know what I mean? It was very spontaneous. So that was fun. And, and there I introduced the the what we call the Carla technique, which was the first time I'd managed to lose any traditional or classical fit scenes like side seams or center back seams or dust bus darts into the image of a flower, it was a carnation, it was a black and white dress. So all those classical and traditional scenes were lost into the image of this carnation, which was quite a technical feat. On plus, don't do simple, the insides of the carnation were cut on the bias in Georgette. I remember one reviewer said it was a fabulous print. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it took, like I don't know, weeks, weeks piecing this thing together so that the actual image was still leasable, but it was in the right place and enhanced the body. So, I mean, it was quite a feat of engineering and it's still something that I still play with today.
0: There was, a, there was another remarkable dress in that collection that I remember, which was worn by Karen Mulder. It was like a very chic, black, kind of narrow-skirted cocktail dress
1: crepe cocktail dress, and on Karen, it kind of took on a subversive quality.
0: I remember um, seeing it at the time and thinking thinking that maybe it was an audition dress for Givenchy. Yes, I think it
1: might have been. Well, yes, then I got a call from Monsieur Simonon, who was the CEO of Givenchy at the time. And we met in the Marais, discreet brasserie, and... Um, and he explained to me about the position and that uh, Mr. Ferry, his contract was finishing and he was moving on. And, and would I? Would I? Yes, of course I would. I mean, I didn't think too long or too hard about it. It was what I was feeling at the time, the couture. And the idea of being able to work with Le Petit Man and uh, Couture Ateliers was just yes. And I was there for, I think, about 18 months or maybe two years, I can't remember. And then after that little stint, there was the call from Mr Arnaud. I wasn't expecting it. It was like Friday afternoon. I had the wrong toenail polish on dreadlocks down to my waist. It was like, (gasps) so wrong, so wrong. And this kind of James Bond bulletproof stained glass window car thing came to pick me up. I had taken some drawings and sketches and presented them to him. And um, he really looked at them. He really did look at them. Because normally, Mr. Arnault, you walk into a meeting and he's already looking at his watch before you sat down. Um, but no, he really looked at them. And then I was sworn to secrecy and I was offered this position to be the Artistic Director of the House of Dior. But I couldn't tell anyone, not my mother, not Amanda, not Stephen. So it was quite a lot to to carry when I was just wanted to scream. But no, I had to soldier on, finish that contract correctly, and then I could tell people when it was the appropriate time. And at that time, I think one of the last collections was all inspired by Le saint coulotte and Madame Recamier and the Empire Line and the girls walked through pine trees, a forest, a very kind of high-waisted with beautiful, delicate little lesage embroideries. And funnily enough, It was the first time we had a live shoot backstage as well, Paolo. We actually did a live shoot before the girls stepped on the runway. This was back in the day. So the girls were electrified.
0: After that Givenchy experience, what was your... What was your vision for Dior? Tell me about the first couture collection. Well, the first
1: couture collection, we recreated the salons of Maison Dior in the Grand Hotel. The Grand, Grand, Grand Hotel. Hotel, yes. Grand Hotel. So we recreated the salons and then we had done a lot of research into the backstage of salon presentations that Mr Dior himself had done. And then there was these almost like pen-inspired pyramids and piles of beautiful little gilt chairs that we in a very anarchic way built on. and that kind of became our backdrop and at the time I was kind of I mean I just joined I think my first collection was this couture collection I'd just overseen a pre-call, and I was really getting my head around the psychology of Mr Dior and the line and the enormous enormous influence his mother had had on him. So I was looking at images of La Belle Epoque and then drawing references to the Maasai tribe and the elegance and the line. I could see parallels. I was in heaven. I mean, I was thrown in at the deep end, baptism by fire.
0: And how did how did Monsieur Arnaud respond to the work that you were doing?
1: Very responsive. I mean, you know, he'd always come to visit at the weekend and he was quite involved. But normally his comments at the end would be um, something like, next season you can afford to be 10%
0: a little bit more crazy. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) And off we went. (laughs) So uh, Monsieur Arnaud is encouraging you to be ever crazier. And that takes you at a certain point to... The the opera Garnier. Do you want to tell me about that collection?
1: Yes, couldn't get any more crazy, could we? Um, <laughs> <laughs> they very kindly let us take the whole buildings. The auditorium became our backstage where we were dressing and glam team wear hair and makeup and then that foyer and that grand stairwell and entrance and up and around. Um, was where the show took place. And it opened with Suzanne von, von Eichinger in a wonderful black dress with a little tree and black voilage of her face, tearing around, running up and down the stairs and around the balconies and frightening everyone. <laughs> no, it was quite a startling uh, impression. And um, she introduced the life of um, the Marquesa Cassati. And so that was the narrative. And it was played through... With all the characters that I think, in the end, then they all came down the stairs and they struck a pose, and then there was all these um, butterfly confetti that fell over everyone, and it was like an impressionistic painting because you could see them and you couldn't see them. It was a beautiful tableau vivant uh, to end a show, a finale. Yeah.
0: So at the same time, I don't. I well, loved it. <laughs> But then, oh,
1: I forgot So, say, because Zyros was my first client. You know, she bought my first Enquillable coat uh, from Mrs B. Um, so she was at that show at that time. So it was lovely to see her again. Oh. Yeah, oh. I'm a big fan.
0: So at the same time that you're creating these kind of um, transporting couture spectacles, you're also reimagining the House of Dior in a holistic way.
1: In the early 90s, uh, Christian Dior had eight boutiques, and a particular way of selling. Um, By 2010, our own retail outlets numbered 230, and enormous inroads were made through wholesale. Along with giving the house more coherence, it also involved and invited us to show the collections in Asia, Beijing, uh, New York, uh, pre collections, etc., cetera, etc.
0: I mean, you're thinking about the image making and collaborating with people, accessories. So, t- t- tell me a little about that.
1: Well, yes, um, coherence. When I went there, all the departments were working separately, and the perfume department really had nothing to do with the couture. And Mr. Arnaud has. We had discussed it, and he said, would you also like to become the artist director of um, Christian Dior Parfum and Makeup? So with TM, we were creating colors, and I was involved in creating perfumes, all the looks. And we created a perfume, very successful perfume, called J'adore, which sometimes gave Chanel Number 5 a run for the money in November and December. J'adore, it's a really funny story, actually. It was old school. It was before Signor Martinez the guy who ran the perfume department, who was super thrilled that, that, you know, that we were connecting. We were working on this new perfume. My French was quite limited at that point. And plus, I was so shy and so nervous. They would say to me, what time is it? And I would say, j'adore. They'd say, it's lunchtime now, and I'd be <laughs> j'adore. So I, my, my answer for anything, whatever, was j'adore, said, you know, differently. Really, it was. And... Um, This guy was really sharp and presented it to Mr. And said, we should just call it a chateau because that's all he says. (laughs) So the rest is history.
0: An enormous thank you to John Galliano and a very happy birthday. We will return next week with In Vogue, the 1990s. Happy holidays. In Vogue, the 1990s, is presented by Anna Winter and produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Julia Doyle, Kinsey Clark, Tarka Zen, and Megan Lubin. Edited by Maura Wolfs. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman, mixed by Rainhouse. In Vogue's editorial team is Laird Borelli Person, Mark Holgate, Nicole Phelps, and myself. Special thanks to Creative Editorial Director Mark Riducci digital director, Annalisa Yabsley, and vice president of audio, Julie Shen. Please do subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information, incredible imagery, and episode references in the show notes or at vogue.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. Until next week, In Vogue.